ready. You've got the electronic notes in version this morning, and they'll be especially beneficial. There's some links in there that you're going to need, and I'd urge you to, to sign up, be a part of version. If you don't know how to do that, if you'll see them at the, at the front desk on your way out, they'll help you uh, navigate that. One of the things that uh, I, I've learned, but God reminds me of it all the time, is that God's timing is, is impeccable. Uh, he, he allows things to happen and arranges things to accomplish his purposes. And if you sometimes step back and just see the bigger picture of what God's doing, you'll always be uh, awed uh, by how God can coordinate billions of people and to the big picture and make our lives work in harmony and intersect us with people at the right time. It's just uh, uh, God, God is awesome. And in his impeccable timing... Uh, he allows events to happen, many scenarios which we would not have chosen to invade our lives. But he allows certain things to happen. And they come into our lives at a certain time and in a certain way to be instructive moments for us. I'm going to step outside my, my notes for a moment and just say this to you. If you never had a bump in the road, never had a trial, never had a difficulty then in many ways you would never grow. Because those are really some of the most defining moments of our lives where we learn lessons, we grow, we're stretched, uh, we learn that God is capable of sustaining us and caring for us in in difficult times. So don't always uh, hate, don't always loathe difficulty. As I said last week, if you take all difficulty away from your children, then you've ensured that they'll never achieve greatness. Because it is the trials that help generate that. And it's some of those difficulties also that teach us how, how much we can depend upon God. How great He is to help us through, through trials. And uh, uh, life really is our classroom. We often think about coming to a Bible study or coming to church and you're commanded to do so. There's definite, specific reasons to do so. But every once in a while, again, see the big picture. Life is our classroom. Uh, Life is where God is challenging you and teaching you every day of your life and through everything, God's giving you practical opportunities to put into practice maybe principles that you learn in in an environment like this. But this is not where it's lived out as much as out there is where it's lived out. And some of our life events are designed to teach us lessons on how to deal with people who insult and malign us. Some of the events of life are specifically designed to teach you this. How should you deal with people who are against you? And the Bible's full of teaching on this topic. Because God loves you so much, he not only wants to justify you through the gospel, which is what we've talked about, Romans 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. He loves you so much, he not only wants to justify you and save you and declare you righteous 
because of your faith in him through the gospel. But he also, now that you are saved, wants to transform your life. And that transformation he wants to happen, it's not because you're not a wonderful person, but there's a much better version of you that looks more like Jesus Christ waiting in your future. God wants to transform your thinking from the old way you used to think to the way God thinks. He wants to transform your attitudes from your old attitudes to the attitudes of Christ and the Word of God. He wants to transform your responses to aggression, to insult. He wants to transform our responses to the way Christ would respond. Ultimately, God wants to transform me enough through my mind that my behavior is transcended. It's become something else. I no longer behave like the old Bobby Harrell, but now I behave like a Bobby Harrell that looks more like Jesus Christ would behave. So our thesis question this morning is very simple and straightforward. Our thesis question is, what about your behavior is drawing people to Christ? What is it about you, how you act, your attitude, your speech, your manner, your behavior, your, 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 your work ethic? We just go to every facet of life. What is it about you that draws people to Christ? What is it about you that people would look at your life and say, that right there, that. The way they just dealt with that, that's what I want. Uh, uh, Brother Parks has been diagnosed with cancer. I think most of you know that. It's going through some pretty aggressive treatment right now. And uh, still at work. I can only imagine that his coworkers look at him every day. And they say, whatever that guy's got, I want. Somebody who can remain optimistic and cheerful and stay at work and love the Lord and love people and be pleasant and be sweet. Even though he's going through this, I want that. What, and I'm just challenging you. What is it about your behavior? That people would look at you and say, I would like to respond like that. I would like to be like that. I would, I would like to reflect that. Let me, let me start with some personal observations. It's always easier for me. Uh, we, we did not allow our boys to have social media accounts until about the 8th grade. It was just the way we were wired at, at our place. I'm not saying you have to be like us. I'm just making an observation. We did not allow our boys to have social media accounts until about, I think it was about the 8th grade when we finally opened that door for them. Because only, only then, well, only then when we opened it around the 8th grade, were, were they ready for it. And only then when we opened it to them, we opened it with specific rules. We had a lot of conversations with our boys when they were at this age about how to use technology for social interaction. Because when we talk about technology and social media, what we're really talking about is communicating with people. It's not all done face-to-face now. It's mostly done not face-to-face. It's mostly done through technology. Now, it's transformed our uh, society, the way we've social networked through electronics. We had lots of conversations with our boys about the, the, the ramifications of using technology for social interaction and how not to abuse that. We had to have lots of conversations with our boys when they were young about the long-lasting effects of putting pictures out into a world where you can never take them back. They're there forever now. We had lots of conversations with our boys about putting words out into a world in a permanent record where they could never be retracted. 
Sure, you can pull down a post and you can pull down a this and you can delete a that, but it's somewhere now recorded. And, and, and no other society and no other generation has ever been quite like we are right now, where you have to really think about uh, all of these things. And imagine putting that pressure on someone who's 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, uh, because I wouldn't have to question you very far to figure out all of us have made some pretty significant errors when we were 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 in a public way that we would like to undo. Can I get a witness anywhere? Okay. Imagine that being in a permanent record somewhere where it couldn't be undone. Well, those are lots of conversations that we as Christian parents need to have with our kids about the public domain and what living as a witness for Christ looks like. <clears throat> now, I'm just talking about the kids. I haven't even got to the adults yet, so y'all relax a little bit, okay? Uh, but we had to have these conversations with our boys. This, we thought that parenting required this. If you want a little help, so if you have version this morning, we've linked in your version notes uh, this resource. Uh, if you want a good book to read that helps you navigate some of this, you can read the, the TechWise Family by Andy Crouch. And uh, you can either get a screenshot right now or it's right there in your notes. It'd be a great summer read, uh, maybe for a family that's trying to navigate this with young kids or, or, or try to figure out what, what some guidelines would be about navigating this. Christians today have this incredible power to access the entire world and to communicate to the community that is completely unprecedented in history. Now, I'm just thinking Paul reached the world by writing a letter and getting on a ship and was able to communicate the gospel message to their generation. This afternoon, you and I could share the gospel message with the world with one press of the enter key. Do you understand the power that, that has been transferred into, into our hands. And I've been thinking about this. Uh, recent events did not drive this message. It's been, on the, been in the works for a long time. For many months now, I've been contemplating how we should be using our networks to communicate not only the message of the Bible, but how the Bible is transforming our lives. Listen to what I'm saying. I've been contemplating not only how we share the message of the Word of God, but how we share how that message has affected my life. There's two parts to this issue. I'll see if I can make it, make it more clear. Many people post scripture. I see it every day of my life. You see it every day of your life. Many people post scripture. But when I see people posting scripture, I come away with the conclusion that they just had a fight with their spouse. Like when a wife posts, husbands love your wives. And I see that, I'm like, oh, wow, they just had World War III over there at the Jared residence, you know. When I see, you know, uh, husbands posting, wives, be in submission to your husbands. I'm just like, wow, they just had a knockdown drag out over there at the Mesh residence. That's all. That's what I'm reading between the lines. And I think when you see that, you've got enough 
Well, let me just ask you, when you see things being posted, do you have enough wisdom to understand that somebody's grinding an axe publicly that should be in private being dealt with in a different manner? Now, now that's been troubling me for, for a while. And uh, I can see people posting scripture, and I rarely comment on these things. Now, I'll tell you, I do type a whole lot of Facebook posts. A lot of Facebook posts I type, lengthy ones. And then I read it three or four times, and I hit the backspace key, and I get rid of all of it. But it's somehow therapeutic for me to type it out and pretend like I'm sending it. And then I backspace it all out, and I don't, I don't post it. What I'm saying is I, I, I can see, and I'm not the sharpest, you know, crayon in the box. If I can see it, I know you can see it because you have discernment as well. And you can see what's happening. You, you, you come away with the perception that someone uh, has targeted that verse of Scripture at some friend that they perceive has mistreated them. And so they feel like they've been mistreated and they post a verse. And when you read the verse, you're like, ooh, I wonder what just happened. See, if we're coming away asking, ooh, I wonder what just happened, then you know we're misusing Scripture. What what I'm saying is when people are posting, we can almost sense that they're directing that post against those wicked politicians or those pesky liberals or that other religious group that's not my group. Or I'm targeting this at people who don't see it the way I see it. And and you're seeing these things and I'm seeing these things and and I think that social media has allowed the Christian community, an opportunity to sin in how we're handling the Holy Scriptures. That's what I think. think social media is not, I don't, we don't just need to be lecturing the junior high boys and girls about how to use it. think this message this morning is for the adults who are posting Scripture even to realize that we're misusing the Word of God and our opportunities as well. What I'm saying is, the Holy Scriptures were not given to you so you could attack someone who doesn't have your viewpoint. And if you think that's why the Bible was given, then you misthink, you've misthought, you've misperceived why God has given you the Scripture He's given you. We've approached the Scriptures now in the modern Christian American subculture We're throwing verses out like they're some kind of holy hand grenades supplied to us by God so we can blow up people who don't agree with us. That's a gross misunderstanding of what Scripture is all about. Let me me challenge you with something. Bible verses come from paragraphs. They are sentences, typically, that come from paragraphs. Those paragraphs are contained inside of letters. Those letters have become books bound together in something we call the canon of Scripture or the Holy Bible or the Holy Scriptures. Let me just let you look through my eyes for a few moments. As as the spiritual leader of a congregation... Now for three decades or more, I have studied and I have ministered the Word of God for a lot of years. 
I want you to know there are rules that I have to live by. As a minister of the Word of God, I am not allowed to take a verse of Scripture and tear it from its context, twist the meaning of that Scripture, pull the pin, and lob it into your living room to attack you. That is conduct that is forbidden upon someone who ministers the Word of God. A verse's meaning can only be understood in the meaning of its context. In other words, unless you read to whom it was written, why it was written, and the surrounding passage where it was written, you really don't know what a verse of Scripture torn out and placed individually even means. It could mean a lot of things, and you won't know unless you put it back into its context and understand the context of that scripture, which is why I'm saying to you, be very careful about scripture hand grenades. Because they'll get a lot of people in trouble, and you'll find you're trying to attack someone, which is a misuse, and you'll find you've misapplied the word of God to a wrong situation. Let me see if I can just illustrate further. You know, you could sleep tonight with a Bible under your pillow. And you would not be any more spiritually transformed in the morning when you woke than you were when you went to bed. Hear what I'm saying. You could put a Bible in your purse and carry it everywhere with you, Barbara. You could put a a Bible in your pocket and carry it everywhere. You could put it under your pillow. And when you wake tomorrow, you're no different spiritually than you were when you started this endeavor eight hours ago. And there's a reason for that, because Scripture is not absorbed through the skin. Scripture does not transform us by assimilation of osmosis. In other words, it doesn't come through the cover, through your skin, and absorb into your body. Uh, It doesn't work like that. Uh, Let me give you a second source of wisdom this morning. Uh, In version, we've linked a podcast And it's a discipleship podcast. We get these all the time. But the link to this cast is in your your version notes. It's called Small Group Versus Bible Class. The title of the podcast is Small Group, think of discipleship group, versus Bible Class, Bible Study, Large Group. What's the difference and do I need both? I think for every one of our members who are understanding uh, our drive to smaller groups, our drive to authentic relationships, It's going to be a great listen for everybody in this church this week as to how Scripture gets into our life and how that Scripture begins to transform our thinking, attitudes, and behavior. I I don't want to minimize, I don't want you to come away with the wrong perception this morning. I'm not minimizing the power of Scripture. Scripture is incredibly powerful. It is powerfully transformative. The scripture can change your life, but it only changes your life when it's taken into your life via your mind. That's how it gets in. It doesn't get in any other way. It comes through ears and eyes and into your brain is what I'm saying. Scripture is powerful, but only as it can get into your mind. And then only if you choose to apply it In such an authentic way that you allow it to transform your person. 
In other words, you can still hear and see Scripture and it not change you. You have to apply it to your own thinking, attitudes, and behavior, to the real you, the real person inside, in such an authentic way that it begins to transform your person, it begins to renew your mind, and it results in a changed outcome, a changed behavior. Now, I'm, as I've been thinking about this, trying to find a solution forward for the body of Christ, I, I think I'm going to recommend something this morning. I'd like us to start a new trend here at Cornerstone. You, you can say you were a pioneer when it swept the worldwide uh, web. Uh, <clears throat> when you post a verse of Scripture, I would like you to comment on how you're applying it to your own life. Now, I just want you to think about the power of this for a moment. When you post a verse of Scripture, and I'm assuming every one of you will, then comment on how you're applying it to your own life. Comment on how that particular verse has changed your thinking, how that verse is changing your desires, how that verse is changing your motives and your, and your attitudes. Yes, post Scripture. We want the world to hear God's Word. We want to use what we have to facilitate the sharing of the Gospel. But also... Post concurrently how that verse has impacted and changed your own life because we want the world to see not only the scripture, but we want the world to see the product of what the scripture produces in the heart that chooses to apply the scripture. Does that make sense? It's be like me selling you detergent and saying, buy the detergent, here it is, it's wonderful. Listen, show me the clean clothes. Show me some whites that are white. Show me some colors that don't fade. Tell me what it smells like. Show me how crisp and wonderful it is. Show me the product that's produced by that. That's all I'm saying to you. If you all want to convince a world, quit throwing hand grenades and start talking about how it's affected your own life as followers and appliers of the Word of God. Now, even as I was writing that sentence this week, God did one of his timing things, and Christina Morrison posted a post that happened just like this as I was typing these sentences. And here's her post. This hit Facebook almost simultaneously. Christina posted this picture. Uh, You know, the Bible commands us to pray. Pray without ceasing and all things. Okay. And then she posted over here. This verse says not to be anxious and pray. I've got to tell you, I've been having so many incidents where I could have been paralyzed with fear and anxiety, but I prayed about those feelings, and I prayed with the faith that God was listening and He cared for me, and not everything turned out how I wanted it to when I wanted. But I was filled with peace and joy as a result of applying that verse to her life. I was filled with peace and joy, praying and having faith in the one true God really does make a difference in you and in your life and you should try it and Christina thank you for that because when I read that I didn't feel like you were trying to blow me up and I didn't feel like you were trying to attack somebody and when I saw that I didn't think oh her and Josh had a big old fight I didn't think any of that you know what I thought 
and what I thought was correct, because if you know Christina, she went through some big trials this past week. Some big trials. Some, some serious things. And you know what she did about it? She prayed. You know what God did when she applied that verse to her life? My life was filled with peace and joy. So I want to say from one of our young disciples who's being discipled here and now about to lead her own group, Christina, that's exactly, you've become our leader today. And that's exactly what the rest of us need to be doing with Scripture right there. Here it is. Here's what it did for me. And for anybody out there that might be struggling right now, God can do for you what he did for me this week. Try him and see. And I want you to know that's a big difference in handling the scripture than the way maybe we've been handling it. So, now let let me get to pick the text back up. Last week we were in Romans 12, 1. Let me read it for you so you don't forget. I appeal to you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, based on what I wrote, chapters 1 through 11, I'm making an appeal to you that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So in Romans 12, Paul's appealing to us on the basis of all that Christ has done for us to become different people, to present our lives as living sacrifices to God, to live in a way that our very behavior every day becomes a continual act of spiritual worship because we're focused on God and we're not focused on ourselves. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. We talked at length about this last week, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So as your mind is not conformed to the world, but transformed to follow God through the scripture and through the Holy Spirit, then behaviors begin to change and thinking begins to change. And the first area he addresses is Self-image. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. As our minds are being transformed by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, applying that to our lives, we begin to think differently, first of all, about ourselves. God deals with self-image. So as Paul's addressing our self-image, he cautions us against living our lives for self-pursuit, self-interest, self-self, self. As I was working this out uh, in the staff, we collaborate a lot. I read the sermon. They give feedback. We collaborate a lot about the messages. Uh, Erica was collaborating with me, Erica McNair. And uh, uh, on this issue of self-image and, and uh, seeing myself as... He, Paul said, don't overthink, but we often we, we trash ourselves. We, we, we pivot between two extremes and rarely find the middle ground. Erica, I asked her to collaborate and help me with a paragraph or two of this, and, and here's her thoughts. Many of us approach life with constant thoughts of worthlessness, rejection, and an inability to measure up. We're often told that thinking of ourselves as dirty rags and focusing on our faults makes us humble. But that is actually the complete opposite of the truth. It was C.S. Lewis who simply and beautifully stated it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Isn't that beautiful? 
there's something to repost and then state why you, you found this interesting. The self-centeredness of self-loathing puts, in the same, puts us in the same sinful position as someone who cannot look beyond their own arrogance and see the needs of others. These two seemingly opposite attitudes, self-centeredness and self-loathing, these opposite seeming attitudes have one thing in common. They both restrict our focus to ourselves. But both self-loathing and self-centeredness become powerful tools that Satan frequently uses to keep us inwardly focused so we miss opportunities to serve, encourage, and love others. Christ did not die for us to wallow in our own self-pity. He sacrificed himself that we could live in freedom as ambassadors for his love and the truth because we are ambassadors for the gospel of Christ. When we entertain thoughts of worthlessness and rejection, we are telling Christ that his work on the cross was not enough. We're telling God that his redeeming grace was somehow faulty when it was applied to my life. And then Satan convinces us that we're being holy in our self-loathing. But what we're really doing is we're allowing ourselves to be so self-centered that we ignore the others around us. In moments where thoughts of rejection and thoughts of inadequacy begin to creep into your mind... Instead of entertaining those thoughts, immediately start praying for someone else. This is great practical advice. Now, for anyone here who struggles with this, and most do, as soon as you start feeling this rejection and self-loathing, don't harbor the thoughts. Instead, immediately begin to pray for someone else. Immediately open your device and begin to text a friend and encourage them. Shift the focus from self to others. In that moment where you have those feelings, pray and ask God to renew how you think about yourself. Say, God, help me with my self-image right now. Help me to think correctly about myself and then Confess out loud. Confess aloud words like this. I am powerful. I am capable. I am gifted because of Christ Jesus. I can do all things through Christ. I am more than a conqueror through Christ. I think those are great words of advice from Erica. Having dealt with self-image... Paul challenges us to think differently now about the body of Christ. This is the way the text flows in Romans 12. Now he's going to shift to church and spiritual gifts, which we uh, got into last week just a little bit. So now you're thinking different about yourself. Now the transformed mind begins to think differently about how we see ourselves as a part of a sanctified community where each person is individually gifted And each person is challenged by God to lift the entire community of believers by the ministry of your individual spiritual gifts. Now, some respond to this teaching by just distancing themselves from the church. Some 
Some believers do not have a heart for church. Some believers have no ministry to the members of the church. Some believers have no mission that extends outward from the church to the, to the community. And some Christians would describe themselves as n- not church people. It's, this church just isn't my thing. Well, you believe in God? Sure, I believe in God. Have you been saved? Sure, I've been born again. But church just isn't my thing. I've heard this a lot in recent history. Shockingly enough, the New Testament knows nothing about believers living out their faith in isolation from the church. Shockingly enough, the New Testament doesn't know anything about people who call themselves believers having no interest, heart, passion, ministry in, from, to, around the body of Christ. And we remind you how Jesus describes the church, the body of Christ. <laughs> That's how he describes it. I would assume your body's fairly important to you. Fairly important to you. You, you, you take care of it. You feed it. You, 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 the Bible says you cherish and nurture your own body. Christ's body is very important to him. Uh, instead, the book of Romans describes those who've been justified by the gospel as a group of people, a body of people who are being transformed within a community. And I don't mean... Fort Worth or Keller, I mean a community of the church, transformed within community. People who believe that living for Christ in community is the only logical choice. That's the language from Romans 12. This is what your reasonable service, this is your logical conclusion. Those who don't have time, place, or passion for the church are living examples of what being conformed to this world is. Because the world thinks the exact same way. The world has no time, place, energy, love, passion for the church either. And that's why Paul's saying, let your mind be transformed so that you're not conformed to the thinking of this present evil age. Now Paul shifts. He shifts to instructions on how you ought to view other believers. In the next ten minutes, let me talk to you how to view other believers. Believers, Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. Now, in your journal, I I think if you could circle this, put a star, put an arrow, something in your journal right here, the, the next section of verses all discuss how you uh, view other believers, how your transformed mind views other Christians. And if you could get the opening statement, you'll have really the thrust of the whole passage. Everything flows out of this love command. Let love be genuine. He goes on to say, abhor that which is evil and hold fast to that which is good. Now, our English word genuine here in the text, uh, we've got one word. They've got a Greek word that corresponds. We had to find a word that would work in English. The Greek word, anupokritos, anupokritos, ah is the nullification, pokritos, it, it means without hypocritos, without hypocrisy. It's from the root word that describes the Greek, ancient Greek actors acting in a drama where they wore masks and pretended to be something they were not. That 
person made believe they felt a certain way or they had a certain uh, attitude, thought, action, and it was all fake. It was just acting. It was just drama. It was just the wearing of a mask. And so the Greeks called their actors hypocrites. That was the name for a Greek actor, which maybe we should use that today in America. Hypocrites. Uh, And uh, they called their actors hypocrites because they were pretending to be what they were not in real life. And we get that. They're actors. They're actors. That's our word for it in, in America, really. You put an awe on the front of that and it negates it so that you come away with genuine. Hypocrite is not genuine. Anupakritos means to be genuine. So when they translate English, they nailed this. Let your love be genuine. Paul's point is very simple for us. As we're dealing with other believers, Christian love must be sincere. It must be real. Whatever you feel for other believers has to be sincere. It has to be real. It cannot be feigned, is the old English King James, faked. cannot be a mask. It cannot be false. You cannot pretend to love, ladies and gentlemen. You're commanded by God to genuinely love one another. And I guess the big picture here of what Paul is saying based on Romans 12, 1 and 2 is if we are hypocritical in our love, we will never stop being conformed to this present evil age and will not be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's the way the world loves. It's not real. It's not genuine. Don't be like that. Have genuine love within the body of Christ. You see, there are some words that should never be attached to our actions. There are some adjectives that should never be attached to nouns in our context as born-again believers. A person ought to never be a cruel lover. They don't go together. You, you should never be uh, an abusive parent. Those words should never be coupled together in a Christian context. You should never be a neglectful child. should never be true about a Christian. You should never be a complaining Christian, according to the New Testament. You should never be an unloving believer. Let love be genuine, you're commanded. You can't be an unloving follower of Christ, Christian. Because to be a Christian is to be genuine in your love. You see, they don't go together. You can't be a fake Friend, those things don't go together. Of course, it's even, it's even worse, really, when you, a person says one thing and really feels another. And that's why uh, Judas' betrayal of Jesus really was so terrible. Just think about that for a minute. It's one thing to betray Jesus. But to do it in the way he did it, he was betrayed with a, a kiss. You know, the, the Bible says in the New Testament, greet each other with a holy kiss. Uh, it's not your custom, so we don't enforce it. So sometimes people tell me, Pastor, we got to follow the Bible word for word exactly. Well, then why didn't you guys all kiss each other this morning when you came in? That's what the Scripture demands. You say, well, we understand that applies to the French, not to us. That's correct. And it applies to the Jewish culture back then, not to us. We don't do that. It's not our culture. It's not our custom. I would imagine you got greeted this morning with a handshake and maybe even a hug. 
If, if you know people in the congregation this morning, I got a few hugs when I came in this morning. And that's our way of showing that brotherly affection. It's one thing to betray Jesus, but it was another thing to kiss him. <laughs> betray him with a kiss, which is something you reserve for your brothers that you loved. It was the ultimate expression of hypocrisy, is my point. Christians are never supposed to pretend they love. We are to genuinely love. So here's the next question. How can you ensure that your love for the saints is genuine? How, how can you be sure that you're on track with this? How, how, that my love that I'm giving is the real thing? And, and I think the simplest answer this morning is the only way we can love each other without hypocrisy is really to see each other as beloved of God. In other words, I can love you with genuineness when I see that you're God's beloved child and he lo- the one who loves me like his son loves you like his child. We are family. When I see how God loves you, that helps me love you with genuine love. For us to love each other with sincerity, we have to see Christ at work in the lives of the other congregants. Now you're only going to see this if you're in community and you're building relationships with people. That's what I'm saying. But when I see Christ at work in the lives of other people, it's much easier for me to love them. Of course, to see Christ at work in someone else's life, you'd have to have an authentic relationship with somebody else. You'd have to be speaking to others and listening to others. You'd have to be kind to others. You'd have to be respectful to others. You'd have to deal courteously with others. You would have to be interested in the lives of other people. If you'll do that, though, you can see how God's at work in their lives. I mean, just me explaining to you what Christine went through this week, you already feel like you have a little connection with her, don't you? Because you know something about something that happened to her last week and how she dealt with that something and how God gave her peace and joy in the middle of a crisis she was going through that was real, not manufactured. It was a real situation. Now, you feel a connection to her because you know something about her and you've seen how God was at work in her life. Now, you just magnify that times several hundreds and you begin to learn how to love each other because you know what God's doing in their life. Now, the behavior commands come next and the behavior flows out of the love command. So, you can never get the cart before the horse We don't behave certain way and then maybe we'll love. What he's saying is if you love genuinely, then behaviors flow out of love. Does that make sense, the order of this? Okay. So let me read Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Here come the commands. Abhor that which is evil. Hold fast to that which is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's beautifully written. Outdo one another when it comes to... You say, we're allowed to be in competition, Pastor? Sure. When it comes to honoring someone else. When it comes to loving each other. The love word here is brotherly love. Love people in a family way. Love like brothers and sisters love each other. And if you have genuine love for others, you're not constantly promoting yourself. He's saying you can't demand first place if you're loving like this. If you truly love others, you're not seeking your own rights in the relationship. You're seeking the betterment of the other person. Now, Paul wrote this same principle to the European Philippian church. 
Let me read you what Paul wrote. Same exact thought. Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You know what solves a lot of problems in our relationships? That phrase right there. Count others more significant than yourself. If I count you as more significant than me, it helps me love you with genuine love. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Don't just be interested in what you're interested in. Be interested in what other people are interested in. If you don't want to have any friends, then just be interested in what you're interested in. If you want to have friends and you want to exercise your gifts and you want to be a part of the kingdom of God and you want to fulfill the commands of Christ, you must be interested in what other people are interested in. You have to turn yourself from your own interests to the interests of other people. It's this attitude of, why don't you go first? No, seriously, why don't you go first? No, really, why don't you go first? Where are we going to go? I don't know, why don't you pick? No, seriously, why don't you pick? Now, you may hate that, but the deferential attitude is exactly what Paul's commanding here, that we defer to others. Now, listen, for some of you with strong personality, that this is not easy. This is a transformed thinking for you and a transformed counter behavior for you that the Holy Spirit would have to do <laughs> because it would not come naturally. And isn't that beautiful? That's exactly what we're aiming at this morning as changed behavior for some of you who would never speak and take the lead this is exactly what god is commanding you to do to be transformed in your thinking and you say well i'm just not that way that's the whole point of romans 12 i'm wired in such a way that sinful by nature oh wretched man that i am who shall deliver me from bobby harrell that's what paul said in romans 7 i need to be changed you say we well, need to get saved i'm already saved and i'm still that messed up that's my point. That's Paul's point. Now that we're saved, we need to go on to sanctification, which is an ongoing process that the Holy Spirit's doing in your life. But you've got to feed him some scripture, guys. You've got to get the word of God in there. And it'll begin to transform your thinking as the Holy Spirit works on you from the inside out. The very definition of being a Christian is to be like Christ. What was Christ like? Philippians 2, Paul continues, verse 5. Now we go Old King James for you. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Y'all remember that verse? Read it in ESV now. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he, he humbled himself. How did he do it? By becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even the death on a cross, the worst death you could imagine. Paul further admonished them in verse 15, 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, how countercultural is that? How radical is that? How radical is that against our very human nature, sinful nature, 
and against our culture and against social media. Social media is a platform for ranting. We all want to go on a rant, don't we? Yes, admit it. We all would like to rant against the man something. You know what Paul said? Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And you're sitting right in the middle of this twisted and crooked world. And Paul said, I want you to shine as a light in a dark world. Let me see if I can land this pretty quickly here. You're to shine as lights in a dark world. The world is watching. And for the sake of the gospel, we cannot allow ourselves to be seen as people who are unloving. Lock what I'm saying right here. Don't be distracted now. The world is watching us. And for the sake of the gospel, we cannot allow the world to perceive us as unloving. Because you understand, if they perceive you as unloving, their ears are closed. Their hearts are closed to whatever you're saying. You said, but I have the right in America of free... Stop it. You may have the right in America to say whatever you want to say, but you don't have the right as a child of God to do it. Are you hearing me? You don't have the right as a child of God to do it. You said, well, I can just blow it. Stop it. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be like Christ, is what he's saying. For the gospel's sake, you cannot allow yourself to be seen as people who are unloving. We cannot be seen by the world as complaining, discontent people because they perceive you are discontent with the redemption that you have experienced through the gospel. Oh, you're saved? How's that working out for you? Well, your salvation's not contented you. You're not satisfied with the gospel. You're not satisfied with your forgiveness. Not satisfied with your salvation. And if we're not satisfied with the justification that God has given us and the new life we've received in Jesus Christ, then we've nullified our testimony before everyone who knows us. We have slammed the door shut on the gospel of Jesus Christ and we've insulted His grace. Instead, Paul tells us to be lights shining in a dark world. You say, well, I don't want to magnify myself. You're missing the point. You're not shining your light. Not in that sense. You're reflecting the light of Jesus Christ to a dark world. Two verses. Here we go. Verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Now, everybody's seen National Geographic Channel, right? And you know what a sloth is. They move about this fast. That's too fast, actually. They move so slow. So to get his image and lock that two-toed sloth into your mind, hanging in a tree, barely moving, barely breathing, barely doing anything, barely living, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Okay, slothful is slow, whereas to have zeal means to have enthusiasm, have enthusiasm, to be high energy, to be passionate about something. The word fervent, fervent in spirit, fervent is actually the Greek word that means to boil water. 
You turn your burner on, depending on what kind of burner you got, it starts glowing red. If you got an electric, it starts glowing red. And a little sensor pops on and says, boop, burner is hot, be careful. You put the water on, it begins to boil. Paul said, that's the way I want you to be about the gospel. I want you to be red hot, on fire for Jesus. That's the way I want you to be about the church. That's the way I want you to be about living for God. I want you to be enthusiastic, not slothful, enthusiastic, red hot, fervent in spirit. Stay red hot for God. Stay red hot for the mission. Stay red hot for spiritual transformation. Stay red hot for the disciple making. Stay red hot for missions. Be excited about serving God through the use of your gifts in the body of Christ at your local church. Let me close it with verse 12 and 13. Rejoice in hope. These are the commands flowing out of love. Stay hot. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the need of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, rejoice is a praise word. So, rejoice is, is a verb. Uh, the noun is, is joy. The way you express joy, the way you verbalize joy is rejoice. It's a praise word. It's a singing word. And so, what the Bible's commanding is that you sing that you have a song in your heart, that you be optimistic, that you constantly be praying for each other, that you in the body constantly be caring for one another, that you be using your spiritual gifts to lift, edify, and rejoice together and stay hopeful and optimistic and pray continually for one another. Use hospitality. That means open your home. Share your barbecue grill with someone. It means show love to people. That's how we treat other Christians, let me come back to my thesis question now. What about your behavior is drawing other people to Christ? You have some ideas?